Hello, and welcome to Rocket Accelerated Geek Conversation. This episode is brought to you by Privacy, Pingdom, and ExpressVPN. I'm Simone de Rochefort, a video producer at Polygon, and I'm here as always with Christina Warren, Senior Cloud Advocate at Microsoft, and Brianna Wu, Executive Director of the Rebellion Pack and Email Possessor. What, you have something to tell us. <laughs> I was thinking today, let's start the show with some viewer mail. They write us, sometimes it's not bad podcast guest requests from like <laughs> companies that should be paying us for an ad if they want us to pimp their product. But sometimes, you know, on top of that, our, our readers write us. What do you say? Let's, let's, let's just start with the good stuff. I love it. I love it. All right. So Mar- Marcello uh, is a fan of the show, and they wrote me today and said, Hi, on the most recent episode of Rocket, Simone mentioned missing out on the availability period of Super Mario 3D All-Stars. I actually have a physical copy of the game that I bought impulsively and will probably never use. It's just collected a little bit of dust. If she was interested in getting a copy of the game, I don't mind sending mine. So I wanted to talk about the ethics of taking... Uh, assets from your <laughs> listeners they are worth thousands of dollars. So, Christina, let's start with you. Would this be an ethical thing if Simone were to take absolutely. this copy? Yes. A- absolutely, but yes. provided. Okay, but, but there's a caveat here, right? Okay, so so the, 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 the provision here is that Simone cannot sell this on eBay right. or like OfferUp or, or Craigslist or anything else. She must possess this and play it. Right. I, I guess my, uh, so uh, I know that like IGN and other outlets have like a game library. So I guess my question to you, Simone, is, I mean, do, does Polygon have something like that? If you needed to get footage, like now that you're nearly uh, fully vaccinated, will you be able to go into the office and play it there? Uh Point one, will I ever <laughs> make a video about a Mario game? Probably not. Point okay. two, at this point, uh, if somebody bought a copy for Polygon or if a physical copy was sent to someone like for review, um, it's probably it's at their house. It's definitely not mm-hmm. at the office. Right. Um, point. So so theoretically, yes, I could obtain the thing. However, <laughs> point three, that's not the same as owning a game that I can't purchase anymore that no one can purchase. Right. <laughs> point four. Right. I would pay you full price for that game. <laughs> I mean, the way I That's see it, the only is way like, my conscience you have to have could support it. Disclosure, right? Like they listen to the episode, they know it's worth a lot of money. So, like our conscience is clear. So, I say to you, Simone, gank that thing. I, I agree. I mean, I, I think you should pay like the the sixty dollars or whatever, right? Um, and and shipping. Um, but yes, gank that game. We have really good <laughs> listeners. We do. This we do. person could make so much money. <laughs> totally, totally could. Um, I mean, the the thing I was going to suggest, and I wasn't able to be on last week because I was having internet issues, but like I would have said, because I know you have like an OG Switch, I would have been like, okay, so this is a situation, Simone, where you buy a second Switch if you really need to go online or whatever, but we hack your Switch and yep. then we download the ROM. Oh, dear. Um, well, I had a follow up point. Really what was I going to say? It's not. Thank, thank you. Yes. <laughs> yes. This is amazing. What I was going to say. <laughs> 
Well, oh. we have amazing listeners. So I will forward you uh, uh, Marcelo's uh, email and oh, you wonderful. two can work it out. And, but we're going to hold you to not profit from this game on eBay. I'm going to trust you. If you, you think I that. have enough energy to sell anything on eBay. <laughs> <laughs> nah man <laughs> exactly no it's like but that's that's the only ethical way to do it so this is exciting i'm so glad thank you marcello for for thinking of simone this is so nice um all right well we have an exciting phone today phone today wow phone. exciting show <laughs> partially about phones and partially about bitcoin and then we'll get to the good part where i get to talk about final fantasy 7 for hours and hours and hours uh, and hours, up, though, and hours, yeah, and a few more additional hours. There has been an update in the story of Apple and the FBI and the San Bernardino Bernardino shooters iPhone. So we now know that the FBI asked an Australian security firm named Azimuth to unlock the iPhone 5C of the San Bernardino shooter. Uh, said iPhone has been a sore subject between Apple and the FBI, to put it ever so lightly, because Apple uh, refused to help the FBI get into the phone uh, with the argument that it would make iPhones as a whole less secure for everyone, even though obviously what was potentially on the phone was important. Uh, In April 2016, the FBI, after having, you know, raked apple over the coals for this decision was like no actually never mind we don't need you uh we can we now uh have access to it and what we now know is that uh, azimuth had used a flaw in mozilla's open source code to access the phone's core processor uh, which allowed them to basically do the uh pin code combination tries that they would generally do to brute force the phone but which in this case if they had just done it Uh, they would have risked being locked out of the phone. Uh, So they were able to bypass that security system. Uh, The researcher who discovered this, David Wong, had actually started a different security company after this, uh, which is currently embroiled in a legal battle with Apple over, of course, accusations that the company illegally breached Apple's security. So we finally have an answer to to this story that's kind of been lurking in, in the background of of Apple's existence and in the news for five years now. And <laughs> oh it my God. probably has consequences for security. The way that they did this, the way that they did this is really, really interesting. Mm-hmm. So there's a certain part of, uh, if, so for the iPhone, there's a certain part uh, of, of the code when you plug a lightning device into your iPhone, uh, at least with the version of the uh, iPhone 5C uh, that the San Bernardino uh, shooter had uh, that is open source. So you had uh, Wong who looked at this and found a certain exploit. So they used this one exploit to run a second exploit and then to run the mega exploit that like allowed them to get into the phone at the highest levels, control everything, turn off the feature that uh, shuts down the phone after, uh, what is it, five tries, and then just brute force it and figure out the code. And they actually went down to FBI headquarters with a ton, according to the New York Times, with mm-hmm. a ton of five uh, C and just showed them doing this process over and wow. over again. So I I really, I thought that was the most interesting part of the story. I, what about you, Christina? 
Yeah, no, I mean, uh, it, you know, I, I at the the height of this when all of this was happening, like I was covering this case like very, very in depth, and um, you know, we were all expecting it to to go to court. Like I was like preparing to potentially even like fly to to um, California to like you know attend like one of like the hearings to see what they were going to Ooh. say, and then all of a sudden, as as you mentioned in the top, Simone, you know, they were like, ah, never mind, and we've all been really curious, how did they get in? And and there mm-hmm. was even, it wasn't even really clear for a number of years, like what company was involved. Like, I think that it was an, an Israeli firm that took credit uh, for quite some time. Uh, Celebrate, I think it was, you know, that was, was frequently credited as the ones who got in and it wasn't them. It was, it was this other firm. Um, but yeah, the, the, um, the method was really, really clever. Basically it was, it was too, um, like it was these these two you know white hack security experts kind of working together. In one case, the um, vulnerability that you mentioned, Bree, when you plug the phone into Lightning, was something that one of the researchers had figured out. It was something that was within Mozilla code, and it and it hadn't been patched. And then um, after he was able to to kind of use that to get in kind of the lower level, then. Um, you know, the second um, a researcher was able to come up with that second solution. And I mean, I think regardless of what you think about uh, the e- the efficacy of selling exploits to governments, uh, which which um, you know um, Apple has brought up in its in its secondary lawsuit, of, you know, in an unrelated case, I think that like this was really clever and a really smart way to to go about you know getting into um, a device. Yeah, and I think above all for me it kind of shows that Apple was correct in not aiding the FBI in this matter. Yes. And oh, that they, yeah. they didn't need to because there's always going to be this arms race in tech. There, there's always going to be an exploit. Somebody is always going to have that latest way to access something. And I think that for Apple it's right that their priority should be protecting the integrity of the phone however they can. It can be up to to white hat hackers in this case to figure out, okay, in this instance, we want to help the FBI. Here's how we get into the phone. That's their job. Um, so yeah, I, I this is it is really interesting. <laughs> I, I do think there's a there are a lot of ethical questions uh in in this piece to kind of unpack one by one. Um I mean, just starting at the top, so the the company in question, they make a really big PR point of only selling exploits to quote democracies, which, you know, I think that that makes it makes me feel a little bit better. Like there's the veneer of not helping uh, dictators all around the world uh, spy on their citizens. But uh, you know, there was a really great quote in the New York Times piece that that really pointed out. Uh, you know, if Apple is concerned about security, then they need to plug. Um, you know, they need to plug the holes in their security uh, rather than you know suing people in court, suing security reasons. Mm-hmm researchers mm-hmm. in court. I am inclined to agree with that in a very strong way, um, particularly considering that the, the the gateway to kind of get into the phone was, uh, according to the New York Times, it was an open source exploit. Now, granted, it was a very, very talented uh, uh, security researcher that found this. But, you know, that's not 
you know, it's not some esoteric thing. I mean, Apple needs to be hiring more. They can hire these people to do this mm-hmm. research for them. So, um, I, 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 you know, the, the second question of this aside, um, I, I found that to be a very compelling argument by the security research firm. And it it kind of yeah. seems like that's what happened. They apparently did try to hire David Wong and they did. then he started his own company. And now Apple's right. like, wait a minute. <laughs> no, that, that, that's actually the part that bothers me. I mean, so I, I do agree that like I personally find it kind of gross whether it's a, a democracy or not. I think that, that selling exploits to governments, I don't love it. Having said that, I also don't think it's something that you should be sued for, to be very clear. Yeah. Like, I, yeah. I I feel like you can you can be uncomfortable with both and then also not like the other result. The thing, though, that I do find a little bit disingenuous about the argument saying, you know, well, then you, you should hire people to find these bugs is that it, it overlooks a fact that, you know, Apple is isn't just doing this for like they make it seem like Apple um, wants to, you know, um, have the you know, exploit uh, uh, finders, uh, the researchers come to them, you know, for a PR thing. But no, it's like they want to keep their users safe, ultimately, right? I mean, there's a reason you don't want people hoarding and selling exploits. Mm-hmm. You you want your users to be safe. So I actually feel like that that should be noted. That said, what I have a problem with is it seems to me, so the, the way that um, the, the Washington Post article, uh, and I think it was it the Washington Post that, that wrote this story, Simone? Uh, yes, it was. Okay. Okay. So the way that the Washington Post story, you know, made it seem, um, after David Wang, who, uh, was able to kind of write the second part of the exploit after he, um, like achieved this, uh, he got an offer from Apple to work for them. He said no. And then he started a different company called Corellium and Corellium has currently been embroiled in ongoing litigation with Apple, um, uh, that, uh, uh, Apple is currently appealing Apple has lost uh, the, the the first um, uh, you know statement of this, where basically Corellium has figured out a way to create like virtual machine versions of iOS devices. The, the the basis being okay, we've been able to kind of clone the software component and get it to run like it would run on hardware, but it's running in in kind of like a virtual machine environment, so that people can do security testing, can do other sorts of things. And Apple says, well, no, this violates. Our, our copyright and and this goes against you know our other stuff. Um, so far, the courts have sided in, in Corellium's favor. Um, Apple's appealing. Apple obviously has a lot more money. I'm not going to get into my thoughts on on how that case goes. My my issue is you take something that is to my mind a completely separate issue, mm-hmm. and and not related to what the the San Bernardino case was, and not related to the initial kind of security instance. And then during discovery and during, you know, the deposition process, you start to ask these questions and try to get, you know, the researcher to reveal information right. um, related to this separate thing. And 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 then even calling it a question, well, well, what are your ethics and what is this and what is that? And to me, I'm like, okay, first of all, you've tried to hire this person. He said no and went and founded a different company. And that clearly bothers you, which fine. But I, I I don't like the fact that the courts are now being brought in in a completely unrelated case for what to a complete outsider appears to be like, you know, like somebody has a vendetta and and and, and is mad, right? Like that that personally bothers me. 
Yeah, I I couldn't agree with you more, Christina. I also I think there's the you know the the question of the virtualized uh, iPhone, which uh, you know Apple's currently suing them over. Yeah, just to give a little history lesson, if you go way back in time uh, to the start of EA and Activision, uh, Activision in particularly, where you had Nintendo having a lockout on um, you know they had lockout on the did lockout uh, technology on the original NES, right? right. The way that Activision, uh, was it Activision or EA? It was Atari. Yeah, it was Tengen. Which was Atari. Which was Atari, right. Um, anyway, the way that they figure out this chip is actually, it's, it's I don't want to say loophole, but it's kind of functionally a loophole in how you engineer technology but don't break the copyright of it. So you have a white room with one version of it, and then you have the two rooms not talking to each other. Mm. And there you can it's kind of like clean room engineering. Out, right, yeah. clean room. Right. And you can figure out how you can basically figure out how to get something to to run on a different kind of system and reverse engineer it. To me, a virtualized iPhone seems like a very, I don't know, that that uh, metaphorically, it seems like a very similar process to like figure out security bugs. I know Apple's going to claim, oh, our code base is, you know, this and that. But it just, it seems like a very legit reverse engineering uh, technology to me. Yeah, I, I mean, you know, um, that's that's a separate topic, and it could go in a lot of ways. I think that Apple's argument—I don't want to misspeak here—I think their argument is less about the functionality of can you get this to work, and more it's about okay, but who owns the license to the software that's being right. run, which we only distribute ourselves. It's similar to the way that they were going after Hackintosh people and and have gone after other things. So far, the courts have not been in Apple's favor, but that you know doesn't mean anything. But yeah, I agree. But but. Even before the Atari Nintendo case, Compaq famously reverse engineered the IBM PC, and mm-hmm. and you know that's why we have computers, frankly, the way that we do. Um, mm-hmm. That's basically why x86 exists the way that it does, is because the you know that that um, um, early like Intel processor and the way that the IBM PC was initially built, Compaq was able to reverse engineer it, and then subsequent chips were not built that same way because the the clones were able to figure it out. So um I I don't know. I mean, I I don't love people hoarding exploits and selling them to the government, any government whether it's it's a sovereign one or democracy or not, but I also don't love companies trying to, you know, in this case it seems like use a different lawsuit to try to, you know, extol like different information from things, if that makes any sense. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I I don't like it. I think it's inevitable. Um, you know, I mean, it's, it's, the, it's Pat, like Apple. Oh, totally. Gonna, yeah. Totally. Yeah, I mean, it is. I mean, the one thing I will say, I think to what you'd mentioned earlier, Simone, I mean, I think this really did, though, just fundamentally underscore, like, why it was important that Apple did stand up five years ago and pushed mm-hmm. back and said, no, you know, um, we are not going to hand over to the FBI a backdoor. We are not going to do this. They stood up to the Obama administration. And that was a really mm-hmm. important thing. And um, I had argued then, and, you know, when I was doing a lot of the reporting stuff and I was talking to a lot of security experts and researchers, you know, basically arguing for exactly what happened, which is 
if the government wants to get in so badly, they should find a way in, whether that is by, you know, paying for their own experts, um, you know, um, contracting a, a company to do it or whatnot. And that's basically what happened here, right? I mean, the only thing that makes me feel slightly better about this in terms of like a hoarding and exploit is that was only one part of it. Like the exploit the guy had, but they did the the other part of it was like they were contract they were contracted and were like, okay, we can build this and we can get into it. Um, and I don't have any ethical problem, to be honest, whether it's a democracy or not, if if somebody has the skills to get into something, you know, like that's that's war games. Yeah. But, you know, I think it helps make software stronger overall. Hey, yo, this episode of Rocket is brought to you by privacy.com. Oh, my goodness. Uh so I, f- listeners, if you didn't uh, listen the first time we talked about this, I have been, I had a concern about my financial privacy when I was almost scammed by an obviously fake website into putting my credit card in to try to buy expensive ski jackets. Um, and only real, I realized it too late. But if I had had privacy at the time, I wouldn't have had to worry about that at all. Because privacy is a tool that makes it easy to manage your financial lives online while keeping your most important information secure. By generating virtual numbers, privacy masks your bank information, which I gave out so freely. So you don't have to worry about giving it to people that you don't know online. Um, (laughs) Christina, I know you've been using privacy for a few years now, uh, unlike me, who has only recently been inducted. Uh, How how do you feel about your financial security? I mean, honestly, I love it because a, it's not just like the, the the ski, you know, jacket places that might seem sketchy, although it's good for that. But because um, it has integration with one password, which makes it really easy to just create a new card, uh, which is awesome. So you don't have to like, you know, go to the website each time and do it. But for me, the bigger thing is, OK, so I sign up for like subscription services that I don't want to renew mm-hmm. and that even if you tell them not to renew, we'll sometimes renew early or we'll do other things. And I'm able to do like a one-time card and I can A, monitor stuff and B, like if I see that something weird is going on, like I just turn it off after I've done, like especially if I pay like a year in advance, I pay my year in advance and then I turn it off. And I'm like- That is so smart. I'm like done. Boom. Take back control of your payments. Decide who can charge your card, how much and how often, and you can close cards at any time. Plus, you can make sure that you're never accidentally billed twice or upgraded to another service without your consent. Just as Christina lives in lives in joy, lives in joy and lack of fear. Uh, privacy is also partnered, as Christina said, with the good folks at 1Password, so you can create, use, and save privacy cards directly within your 1Password dashboard. All virtual cards created within 1Password will have the same security benefits as your other privacy cards, and you can set spend limits, create single-use or merchant-locked cards whenever you want. So I could make a card that's just locked for REI and <laughs> turn it off for, for myself. <laughs> set a, yeah, set a very rigorous spend limit because I'm out of control. Head to privacy.com slash rocket and sign up for an account. New customers will automatically get $5 to spend on your first purchase. So head over to privacy.com slash rocket and sign up now. Our thanks to Privacy for their support of this show and Relay FM. Now I'm going to loudly sit up straight so that I can control my breathing.
<laughs> Just to be clear, REI was not the sketchy vendor that I almost gave my fan or did give my financial info to. REI has only ever done right by me. No, REI is good stuff. Like I, I would, I would have been mad if it were REI. No, honestly. At REI, don't worry. At REI, the Arctic ski jackets are never on sale. I was going to say, first of all, I was going to say, first of all, REI doesn't have sales like that. They have like the one sale a year, like the two sales a year or whatever. But like, it's not. Yeah, exactly. According to my inbox, REI has more sales than that. However, you're correct in that. Yeah, they're really the two big ones. Honestly, they're they're like two two big ones a year. And and also REI is a co-op. Which mm-hmm. is a pretty gr- is is pretty great, honestly. And I'm a member. Anyway, hey now, <laughs> we got some more crypto news this week. So as of today, Coinbase, the service that lets people buy and sell their favorite digital currencies, uh, they had their IPO this week. And as of today, recording Wednesday evening, it has been volatile, but not bad. Uh, so shares started out at 429. They went down to 310. They settled. I, I think they closed at 328, um, which is obviously a loss, but it also ended the day with more than 10 times its last valuation as a private company, according to the New York Times article I read about this. Um, so that's that's big news. It's the first kind of uh, it's the first crypto uh, like buying platform that has gone public. Um, part of a very good year so far for cryptocurrency and it's a great time for them because of all of the fanfare and uh publicity around cryptocurrency Uh, as the new york times pointed out in their piece unlike a lot of startups coinbase actually is profitable (laughs) which is wild (laughs) uh thanks to of course transaction fees that being said crypto is still a market where literally anything could happen any day any time Uh, I've also got a quote here from analyst Dan Ives. Uh, He wrote a memo. In this memo, he said that this is a barometer for the growing mainstream adoption of Bitcoin and crypto for the coming years, which I think is true. And most of what I saw, most of the reactions I saw from like the professional sphere of cryptocurrency were pretty happy about this. I was hunting around looking to see if there was another side to it. And I I struggled to find anything other than people thinking "Eh, Coinbase is not revolutionary and they think it's overvalued. Um, That was pretty much the only kind of dissenting opinion on this I saw. Um, I will say I did spend some time on the Coinbase Reddit today for research. And the the tone there very much reminded me of the GameStop debacle. Oh, the exact same thing. People on Reddit are treating it very much like hold buy your stocks and hold let's make coinbase go up which like eh, they're treating it like a game um but i don't necessarily expect any different from that particular audience i want to know what y'all think well i i mean this is a really big day for cryptocurrency this is this is the day that love it or hate it uh cryptocurrency is really becoming uh enmeshed in the mainstream uh, financial system, you know, when you have uh, when you have two, uh, how can I put this? 
one of the like historically the ways to get two different countries that are at war to like really begin to find peace together is to have them begin to entangle their interests in a mutually beneficial way so they kind of have to work together and i think that's really what's happening here with traditional you know currency and and cryptocurrency like you've got something that's a juggernaut that the the market cap for it is literally worth more is worth just an immense amount of money. So I think this is the point that even investors have no freaking idea what crypto is. This is uh, the point that they're going to have to to pay attention for to this. Um, you I, know, I actually and, have a question yeah, about please, that, actually. Yeah. Uh, sorry, before Christina t- talks, I'm sure you have your opinions too. I am wondering why, because it seems to me like for people who enjoy crypto, a lot of the attraction of it is it's not enmeshed in our existing financial system that it's like right. free and out of, you know, not under some big Wall Street's control or whatever. So why is this being met with such positive reaction? Well, I think it's the seal of approval. Um, you know, it doesn't change the way that cryptocurrency fundamentally works. Um, I do have to say, like our, uh, so I forget who it was, our treasury department came out just today and was saying, uh, you know, cryptocurrency is increasingly something they're seeing people use to do tax evasion with. So mm-hmm. I do think with this, you're going to see an increased amount of uh, basically regulators stepping in. And I think that's very perceptive of you, Simone. There, there's going to be a, uh, there's going, I don't want to say cost because I think it's appropriate, but there's going to be, uh, there are going to be other things that are going to follow from here. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I just think, I think overall, you know, full disclosure, I did buy some of Coinbase today because if you look at where Facebook was when it first had its IPO, I remember the day. I think about this all the time. And I was like, yeah, Facebook's kind of lost its glamour. I'm not sure people are still going to be on it in a while. That was a really bad call. I'm sorry. I'm not laughing at you. (laughs) No, I didn't have money to invest back then. But, um, you know, today, I I think that the legitimate criticism of cryptocurrency and Bitcoin is that overwhelmingly it's more of a a speculative investment more than something people use to actually buy things. I think that's a very, very legit concern. Um, But that said, uh, I do think that crypto has a future. And, you know, I thought it was appropriate to invest some in uh, basically what the, the PayPal is in crypto right now. Yeah, I mean, I think it's sort of interesting. Uh, I did not invest in Coinbase uh, today. Um, I tend not to buy in um, at, at IPOs that are this hot because you can never get in low enough and you don't know what your buy price is going to be and whatnot. Um, but but I certainly don't like, uh, I, I don't blame people who did get in. Um, I did, however, buy Dogecoin last night uh, because I had money in a, like a, a, a stupid account that I forgot about. And um, Dogecoin, which is to be clear, literally worthless, literally should be worth zero because it it there's no maximum amount amount of, of coins that you can create. There's nothing you can even pretend to use with it. Like it is, it is literally a meme coin. It was created like to personify how dumb cryptocurrency <laughs> is. Uh, but uh, my investment is up. I, I bought five hundred dollars worth, and I, it is at. Let me see where am I right now. I'm at. Um, I'm up 70 bucks right now. Um, so um, 
not bad. Um, but like all those things being said, uh, I do agree largely with um, w- with what you've said, Bree. Um, I I think that, and you as well, Simone. I do feel like this is going to be one of those things that we start to see more regulation, especially around tax stuff and and around kind of tracking where money goes. The one thing, though, I I do personally find humorous about this and and in ironic in a lot of ways is that you know this is this massive IPO. It's it's this company that's already. Um, you know, um, profitable or or on its face and profitable that's already you know making like positive you know uh, revenue or whatever. Um, but it's what it's essentially done is it is centralizing decentralized currencies. Like the whole point yeah. of crypto <laughs> has been to be decentralized. What what Coinbase does is it centralizes it. So I'm sorry, I personally find that ironic because if you did actually believe in any of like the this is safer than ca- this is you know a, a new form of cash and, and get yourself off the grid and pay anonymously and all that stuff then you wouldn't use coinbase as your exchange or your wallet like you wouldn't right um the fact though that because it's easy to use and because people can essentially use it you know um with with their existing banking systems and coinbase reports you and coinbase over the years there have been many people who you know um criticize them because they've done things like um, you know, there have been different snafus with different banks and Coinbase over the years. I, they've been worked out. But these are things that have happened where they've said, oh, well, we we won't accept your deposits from this bank anymore, or we're blocking this or that, or we're reporting this amount of, of buying to, you know, the IRS or, or to other, you know, um, governments or whatever, like, which are things that you often have to do if you're going to be in, in this sort of game. Um, but I'm sorry, I, I find I, it's ironic because the whole point of crypto for a lot of people, the way that it was sold was that it was decentralized. And what's yeah. $100 billion company? The centralization of that. I think that's why I, I kind of went to Reddit expecting in a way to find people like not happy about this because that was my impression of, of people who are involved in crypto. And obviously what I found was people, you know, finding another opportunity to gamble on something yeah, um, which, well, like you said, it's ironic. I, I don't. I don't necessarily think it's like bad. I'm just kind of bemused by it. Oh, totally. Um, yeah. I, I mean, I think that's fair. I mean, you know, Coinbase in the New York Times article that uh, you know, we're going to put in our show notes, they themselves say that they expect more competition in this space very soon. Yeah, their massive amount of profits this year. What was it like? Eight hundred eighty million or something? Mm-hmm. It was close to a billion, if I remember. Something correctly. silly like that. It's 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 because they they practically have no competitors right and they themselves are saying they expect over time that there will be more competitors in this space and you know their margins will slow mm-hmm. uh, though presumably this is going to keep growing i i do want to say um i we have to have an honest conversation from a policy perspective about crypto at this point. So I before I prep for the show today, I just wanted to find out how much I have made on my mega computer running uh, NiceHash just for a month because it's been practically a month since I put all this together. And I looked it all up. I have made $400 in Bitcoin uh, from, from mining in 30 days. 
And some of that is, you know, granted because Bitcoin has appreciated quite a, a lot lately, but at the same time, um, yeah, that's four hundred dollars that I made from how much was the card, Christina? Like nineteen uh, hundred. Yeah, about that. That's going to be money I recoup fairly quickly on this. Right. You can't put your head in the sand and just like lecture people on Twitter into pretending this environmental disaster is going to go away. Uh, we need to have a much smarter conversation about taxation and tax evasion and energy usage. I mean, there's a whole host of policy things we need to be thinking about. And I, I really feel like this tendency of the left to just, um, you know, scold people. I feel like it's not going to, uh, it's not going to arrive at anything that's helpful for people because I mean, this is, this is a big day. This is important. Have you, how do you, so you've, you've made $400 mining, but at yeah. what point does that money stop being cryptocurrency for you and start being like actual money in your bank account that is replacing the money you spent on the card? I could click a button on Coinbase and turn it into money that's mm -hmm. transferred into my bank account right now. The thing is, uh, currently, that Bitcoin is appreciating faster than it would <laughs> be if I put that money in the stock market. So yeah. um, it's exactly where it needs to be. That also creates a taxable event if you do that. Yeah. I, I think for me, this just kind of, for me, this... Uh, move towards mainstream for crypto just represents how ensnared we ultimately are in capitalism and in centralized capitalism because like this as much as I personally don't like crypto and I object to it um, on an ethical level this just shows like nothing like once this became something that was viewed as profitable there became a way to kind of bring it back into the fold of what we consider normal, normal, the normal financial world. Yeah. So no, you're exactly yeah. right. You're exactly right. I mean, and it started, I mean, the thing is, is that we've seen the, these booms and, and busts many times over the years. Um, this is, this year has been unprecedented in, in how much uh, things have gone up. Like I'm, I'm mad at myself because when Bitcoin was at 6,000 last year, I, I considered, buying in and I didn't. And and now I, I really regret that because that would have been a massive 10x, you know, investment, um, which, you know, you never get that return in anything else. And and sure, gambling, this and that, I I get it. But like I I I'm personally like mad at myself for not going with my gut there. Um, but yeah, uh, what's always been interesting to me about Bitcoin is that the early people were very much decentralized first and, and wanted to get away from kind of the central banking system. Uh, but as soon as you're exactly right, as soon as people started making money off of it, that started to shift. You started to see the Ponzi schemes. You started to see, um, you know, the, um, the people who weren't great, like the, the, the very first big exchange was Mt. Gox, which, you know, they lost, uh, I'm saying that with, with quotation marks, you know, a bunch of their coins, some of that's been recovered because crypto has gone up in value so much. The people who, you know, lost some of those coins, even if they only got a fraction of them back have made many, many times, you know, how much they had initially, you know, in, in 2012 or 2013, when that hack took place um, back, you know, depending on what's been able to be recovered. Um, but but that was, you know, Mt. Gox, which got its name from being like a, a magic, <laughs> the the the, um, the gathering exchange, mm -hmm. like that's where the name came from. Um, 
was the Coinbase of its day. And and it was actually the hacks there and the things that happened there that led to the creation of Coinbase and some of the other exchanges. And Coinbase has just done the best job in terms of really being able to get everything legally working, which is something that a lot of the early exchanges really eschewed. Whereas Coinbase, I think this was interesting about them, and I think this is why they've been successful, is that they, from the beginning, understood kind of what you said, Simone, which is that as soon as there's money in this, the centralization will happen. It will be brought into the fold of, you know, uh, and I hate to use the term, but but it, it's the term the crypto people use into the fiat system, right? <laughs> and 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 that's what they did. You know, they've worked with regulators. They've worked with the banks. They have their tax stuff in place. They are very much happy to be part of the system. Um, and, and instead, they just see this as any sort of other, you know, speculative security uh, rather than we're going to fight the man and create our own grid and and you know not not be part of this centralized system. Mm-hmm. I think the the thing the the question that crypto is going to have to eventually answer is what is what function does it ultimately serve? What problem does using cryptocurrency? address other than buying drugs on Silk Road and tax evasion better than traditional currency does. Because currently, you know, there's a, a bigger fool uh, uh, like as far as as far as scams, like if you thought of this as a scam, this is currently the bigger fool scam. Right. Where I have this thing and it's appreciating in value. And at some point I'm hoping that I will be able yeah. to sell all of my cryptocurrency to someone who's a bigger fool than right. I am. And to be clear, like other than cryptocurrency and mining, I put exactly like $30 into Bitcoin, which is appreciated a lot over the time, but still, um, but it's gotta, it's, Right now, I feel like cryptocurrency is a it's a solution in search of a problem mm. because the the speed of yeah. the transactions going through is terrible. It is, and and, and yeah. to be clear, I, I mean I think that's I don't know if they have to come up with that solution right now. Like for 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 years now, for a decade now, uh, close to people have been comparing you know uh, Bitcoin to tulip mania, like and and that's what the detractors have said, and and I've tulip said mania? that. What, what tulip, tulip mania, mania was was a thing that took place um, in like the uh, in the 1600s in the Netherlands, where basically people um, created um, like tulips, the flowers, and. Um, they would mutate naturally and they would have like these different like, uh, you know, uh, streaks of colors with, with different combinations and they became like a status symbol. And so like who owned the best one and it it helped create um, like the wealthier merchant class in Holland. And they were highly sought after for, um, you know, based on on the different color combinations and it created like a spot market and it created basically very similar to what we see with Bitcoin where people were, you know, um, giving it an intrinsic value that it hadn't earned and you didn't have anything you could do with it. It just was worth it because that's what the market said that it was worth and, and you know, created kind of the, this, this trading system um, and and it eventually collapsed and and uh, that, that was kind of the end of it and kind of, you know, became kind of this footnote in history. And so a lot of people have over the years... I don't think wrongly necessarily compared that to to Bitcoin. 
the only thing I disagree with, because I, I don't think you're wrong, it needs to have a reason to exist. All the reasons that we've had so far are absolutely never going to be the case. No one will ever pay with Bitcoin. If, if you're going to be using a, a crypto system to pay for stuff, especially from a centralized way, you wouldn't use something that takes as long as Bitcoin. You would use something like Monero or Zcash or you know some of these other things, which, and I wouldn't use any of them, right? But you more than likely, you would have um, some other, like, probably like, like, you know, like central bank backed system um, that, that would would come in is, is what my guess would be. But I don't know if it matters right now. The market is is just completely like insane. And and it, it's not rational. It, it is irrational. Um, but people have decided and a lot of people who have a lot of big holdings and a lot of very wealthy people, whether it's for tax purposes or, or other things, ways to launder money, which sure, I think that's not a small part of it. Have decided that that's what this is, and um, that doesn't mean that it that it can't and won't collapse. But I, I think that it's it's now we're now past that point where it's it's reached heights where I don't think that the collapse will happen to a point where it would it would like go to zero. Like it 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 would be mm-hmm. slow enough where where people who bought in at sixty three thousand dollars a coin, if if you were to put all your life savings into that and not like just buying like like piecemeal things and parts of it and making it part of an investment strategy. Yeah, they might get screwed if something big were to happen. But I think otherwise, like there are people who are holding long positions and who are doing other things that so much of this is tied up that it, it could be years before, you know, you see that come down, even if there is never anything you can do with it, because it's just, it's, it's what people have determined something is worth for, for, for good or for bad. It's irrational, but it is what it is. Yeah, and and to be clear, my position isn't like this going to drop to zero oh, at I some that. point. Yeah, I mean that's in fact I think that it being enmeshed in our uh, in in our traditional system is going to give it a, a great deal of stability. I'm just saying, long term, I I think that uh, beyond the speculation, which let's be clear, that's why people are moving their money into this oh, is totally. the speculation. I think that we've got to. What are the things that you can do better with crypto? Like, how can we? What kind of transactions can we do? How can we fix the uh, you know the transaction limit, which makes Bitcoin very very slow? If I transfer like something from NiceHash to my uh, Coinbase account, even though that's Bitcoin to Bitcoin, it's just transferring the wallet. I mean, it takes five minutes sometimes. So right. you know, these are these are real questions that that need to be answered here. And perhaps we shall answer them on future episodes of Rocket. Wow, this episode is brought to you by Pingdom from SolarWinds. Today's internet users expect a fast web experience. No matter how targeted your marketing content or how sleek your website is, they'll bounce if a page is loading too slowly. But with real user monitoring from Pingdom, you can discover how website performance affects your visitors' experience. So you can take action before your business is impacted, all for as low as $10 a month. Whether visitors are dispersed around the world or across browsers, devices, and platforms, Pingdom helps you identify bottlenecks, troubleshoot performance, and make informed optimizations. Real user monitoring is an event-based solution, so it is built for scalability. That means you can monitor millions of page views, not just sampled data. And at an affordable price. 
Get live site performance visibility today with real user monitoring from Pingdom. Go to pingdom.com slash RelayFM right now for a 30-day trial free with no credit card required. And then when you're ready to buy, use the code ROCKET at checkout to get an awesome 30% off your first invoice. That is P-I-N-G-D-O-M dot com slash RelayFM and then code ROCKET at checkout. Thank you to Pingdom from Solar Winds for their support of this show and Relay FM. Wow. Our third topic today is all about me. <laughs> I made a video. Uh, so I think I mentioned this on a previous show. I have been working on a video about the architecture and world design in Final Fantasy VII Remake, and it finally came out on Sunday. Um, it was only 17 minutes long. But uh, Bree suggested I talk about it, which I really, really appreciate. It, I, it's a good video. It is the most Simone video. So can, just full is. disclosure here, when I first heard that you were making like this Final Fantasy video, part of my brain, the mean part of my brain, was like, oh, okay, come on. <laughs> I was there when they released this game. And I've played this, and I've beaten all the mega bosses. What could Simone possibly <laughs> have to say about Final Fantasy VII? Like, she's very young, you know, like the curmudgeonly, and then I totally. turned into you know, the Snow White, like Evil Queen. And <laughs> <laughs> and I pulled the trap door over You were head. six years old. Right. You yes. underestimated my interest in architecture, Brianna Wu. <laughs> <laughs> but then I watched the video, and it is so goddamn delightful Thank because you. she found the most Simone take on this <laughs> that I would never think about in a million years. So please tell everyone everything about it. I will do that instead of finding a new font for our <laughs> show notes document. Um, so basically, I I just there were so many moments in Final Fantasy VII Remake that I loved. Like I felt like I wanted to go to this world and walk around and go into the shops and just kind of soak it all in. And I realized part of that was because of the incredible world design and. Parts of it, especially as I was, as you start the game out in Sector 8, parts of it just kind of reminded me of New York City. And that was kind of a jumping off point for me to say, well, is this, does this actually remind me of New York City? Or is that just because I live there? And if this is based in some way on New York City, then what about the rest of the game? Like, what other architectural influences are here? And so I kind of went through sector by sector and looked at all of the buildings <laughs> And all of the light fixtures and all of everything and talked about the design principles and the architectural inspirations behind everything. And the answer is yes and, essentially. Mm -hmm. Like, yes, there's a lot of New York City in there, but there's a lot of everywhere in that game. And it all comes together to tell you to, to tell you things about this city that that are true to the story and relevant to the story that are just kind of baked into the world that you're playing in and i find that so cool and it's so good <laughs> so can i give a couple of my favorite examples of this from yeah. the from the from your video so i i played through this game and i'm like i got this i know this i know this area and what i found so interesting is you pointed out that they deliberately mix architectures together. Like, so, I mean, can you tell people about that? Like the deliberate mixing of two genres? Yes, I can. <laughs> um, so in Sector 
eight specifically, there's a lot of these brick, uh, like 19th century style building, tenement style buildings uh, with iron fire escapes, which you basically see all over New York City. And including, I didn't manage to fit this in the video because of length, but they have water towers on them, like the exact kind of water towers that you see all over New York City. Um, They're everywhere in Sector 8, but there is basically an equal amount of Beaux-Arts buildings, which is this French style also from the 19th century. It was very popular, like from 1830s was when it started. And then it became incredibly popular at the end of the 1800s through the beginning of the 20th century. Um, And that style originated in France, but basically everyone was like, whoa, this looks gorgeous. Let's take it all over the world. And it came to the United States in a huge, huge way, uh, in part because of one of the uh, World's Fair exhibitions in Chicago. They had this whole Beaux-Arts theme. Um, And for Americans at the time, it kind of represented this idea uh, because it's a greek inspired french style and for americans at the time it represented this idea that like yes we are the new democracy we are done with the civil war we are pretty (laughs) great actually which like (laughs) in retrospect it's like ah you guys still had a lot of problems but it represented this idea in america that we were really on the up and up So all these buildings that you see all over New York, uh, the New York Public Library, the Brooklyn Museum, are done in this style that's very ornate. There's a lot of fancy stonework. There's a lot of statues. There's a lot of columns and arches and blah, blah, blah. But Um, it was very specifically the mixing of things together. You point out, like, this thing. I remember looking at this in the game and going, that's amazing. Why is that appealing? I don't know why. And then you explained it to me. So there's a scene in the game where you have these, uh, the Final Fantasy version of like the British Doctor Who telephone booth. Oh, yeah. And then right next to it is a freaking American <laughs> mailbox. That and it's delighted me. it's the mixture me. of the two. It's yes. the mixture of those two together. So you've got like the this like French open cafe here and then a New York like uh, style fire escape right above it. It's that mix of it that makes the world feel so exotic in Midgar. At the same time, it feels very familiar, if that makes that's, sense. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I talked to a, uh, a curator, actually, from the Smithsonian Museum. Uh, their name is Kip Brooks. And one of the things that they pointed out was that, yes, that mix of styles from all over the world is basically telegraphing like wealth and exoticism. And I'm using that in this sense. Like, I, I think generally in the West, we tend to use that to like refer to eastern cultures it's like ooh, this is foreign it's not in that sense that i'm using it it's because this is a japanese game they're mm-hmm. pulling in these influences from all over the world because right. in this sense like something from france signifies like the the foreign in this instance the exotic so I, yeah, the uh, telephone, the UK telephone boxes right next to the USPS mailboxes, I love. And there's also mm-hmm. a relay box there. I don't, I didn't, I wasn't able to mention this either. But um, in large cities, I've never seen these outside of New York City. I think they have them in all large cities, though. There are relay boxes, which are USPS boxes that are green, where postal workers will store their packages to pick up later in their run to just make things more efficient. They also oh. have USPS relay boxes in Midgar, which is do delightful and the bus signs look literally exactly like manhattan's bus signs which makes me very happy 
So mm-hmm. I want to talk about my favorite level in this uh, in the the remake, which is the Shinra building. And you happened upon a really brilliant explanation about why it looks so menacing. So if you don't know this area in the game, if you haven't played it, it's it's this. It's like an Apple store, but with the invert filter on Photoshop turned (laughs) on. So it's very black everywhere. And uh, you have a really great explanation for why this is so intimidating with our friend, Mr. Sun. Mr. Sun. You want to know about Mr. Sun? So I I found this uh, translation of a lighting expert. There's a Japanese lighting expert named Hirayasu Shoji who looked at the Shinra building and basically this building, which is like, as Bree said, very black marble leather interiors, like, oh, so intimidating. They use a lot of floor based lighting. So like these round little lights that um, dot the floor around the staircases and things like that. And that kind of makes everything feel a little bit wrong when there's so much light coming from the floor because we're very used to as Brie pointed out, Mr. Sun, a character who mm. appears in my video. A light comes from the sky. We're used to light coming from the sky. That's natural. We all have ceiling lights in our homes. When light comes from the floor, it uh, symbolizes something very different. And yet another thing that I wasn't able to put in that video, it's used in uh, sci-fi movies as well. Like 2001 A Space Odyssey was, I think, one of the main ones that was pointed out yep. where like, for a lot of that movie the light is coming from the side because the space station is not necessarily facing upright because it's in space. So the sun is coming from the side and it's very, it's something that disorients us and symbolizes like, yeah, Shinra is literally on top of the world. They're sucking all of the life out of this planet. This building is taller than anything that is around it. And it is pulling and killing everything that is below it. It's pulling power from everything that's below it. So it rules. The design's so good. This is just delightful. Thank how you. Long did it, how long did it take you to to work on this? Do you think, like, between the research, the editing, everything? Like, so how long? long. <laughs> <laughs> it, it took a it took a few weeks for sure, and I had a lot of it was just like me watching the videos because I. I I had not beaten the game yet, so I couldn't do chapter select. So I started off by just watching Let's Plays online of, like, the parts that I had already played um, in slow motion. And then I finally went back and I finished the game and was able to go capture all the footage uh, from those areas and then noticed even more things. Um, and up until <laughs> up until the day we shot, I think I shot my last interview the day before the video was done. So I actually changed... <laughs> A big portion of the script because I was like, I've got more information now. Whoopsie. Um, yeah, it, it was. It took a few weeks. It was a very happy couple weeks, though. Well, I think it's a delightful video. And like I said, uh, you warmed my Final Fantasy loving, curmudgeonly <laughs> heart. Uh, and I think people should absolutely watch it, if for nothing else, to meet Mr. Sun, who is a great character. Yeah, I hope everyone enjoys Mr. Sun. He can't hurt you. He's not real. He's not real. Well, let's talk about what else we're up to this week. No, actually, I'm going to tell you about ExpressVPN, which yeah, this episode are. of Rocket is brought to you by. A few decades ago, it was easy to be a private person. You weren't an influencer yet. What's changed? The entire internet. Think about everything that you've browsed, searched for, watched, or tweeted. 
It's all out there, and data can be crawled through, collected, and aggregated by third parties. Having your private life exposed for others to see was once something only celebrities worried about. But in an era where everyone is online, everyone can be a public figure, which is very true. To keep our data private when we go online, we can turn to ExpressVPN. There are hundreds of data brokers out there, and their sole business is to buy and sell data. The worst part is they don't have to tell you who they're selling it to or get your consent. One of these data points is your IP address, which is used to uniquely identify you and your location. But with ExpressVPN, your connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server and your IP address is masked. So when you turn ExpressVPN on, you're given a random IP address shared by other ExpressVPN customers. That makes it more difficult for third parties to identify individual people and harvest data. And the best part is how easy ExpressVPN is to use. No matter what device you're on, phone, laptop, smart TV, all you have to do is tap one button to get protected. I think this is definitely especially relevant as we begin to leave our homes. <laughs> I mean, protecting your home IP address, very, very important. As we begin to leave our homes, we'll be uh, accessing public Wi-Fi again, potentially. Uh, which is where ExpressVPN also comes in very handy because you don't know who's out there trying to get into your little machines and steal your whole life away. And it is indeed very easy to use. So if, like me, you believe that your data is your business, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN on the market. Visit expressvpn.com rocket and get three extra months for free. That's expressvpn.com rocket, E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N.com rocket. Go there to learn more. Our thanks to ExpressVPN for their support of the show and all of Relay FM. Protect yourself from Mr. Sun. He's coming oh, for he's your out there. address. He's probing he's with everywhere. his beams. He's everywhere. <laughs> uh, Brianna, what are you doing this week? Oh my God. Y'all, uh, Christina, I'm going to need you to talk me out of this because this is this is probably a bad idea. Uh, so I've been talking a lot on, uh, yeah, I can tell you about my job, you know, whatever. Uh, I've been working a lot on my Porsche 911 lately. Uh, so one of the big faults with the 1986 Porsche 911, like every single car from this era, is the air conditioner absolutely sucks. It's mm. terrible. And part of that is because the hoses in it are, th in my Mine are now 36 years old <laughs> and after a while like things start to leak so um i talked to my mechanic this week and i'm like yeah i'm thinking about uh taking apart my evaporator my condenser pulling out all my hose lines uh pulling out the lower condenser uh adding a third air conditioner vent and doing this huge 25 hour project um mm -hmm. i'm expecting him to say no, Bree, this is beyond your ability. Just bring it in. We'll let the pros handle it. And he's like, no, it's it's not a hard job. It's just very, very tedious and a lot of grunt work. And I think, yeah, I think you could do that. And I'm like, stop. Now the gauntlet's been thrown. Now I got to spend 25 <laughs> hours on my back underneath a 36-year-old car installing an air conditioner. 
I'm going to try it, and that project starts this weekend. So, uh, you know, I, I do have to say, last time I tried something electrical, I didn't set the car on fire. I did release a little magic smoke. So I'm hoping that doesn't happen again. So, Christina, talk me out of this or talk me into it. I don't know. I mean, look, I'm not a fan of laying – okay, actually, how do I want to phrase this? <laughs> I was going to say something about laying on my back with hoses, but um, <laughs> I'm sorry. This is, sorry. This, is, this is this is this is this is where this is our show. This is why you all listen. That's, um, that's true. Yeah, I'm not a fan. I'm not a fan of manual labor. Yep. So I would just pay someone else to do it. That's me. But I do also appreciate that part of this is like the effort of going through and doing it. Right. So. I I also understand that, right? Like it, it's kind of like me, like building a keyboard or a computer. Like, I, I, so I I understand that aspect. Um, I mean, you can try it. Like, worst thing that can happen is you can like ruin your car, right? Yeah. Uh, no, I think the worst thing that'll happen is I'll have to go to my mechanic Jerry and say. I'm too dumb to do this. Oh well, then, yeah, then try it. 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 So. Look, uh, Jerry I has think seen as a way car dumber. lover, this is your curse. Right. I was going to exactly. say, also, Jerry's seen way dumber than this. Like, <laughs> Jerry, Jerry's not, Jerry can't judge. Jerry's in business because of people like you who think that they can do things and then can't. So, like, <laughs> right. honestly, exactly. Jerry's fine. Exactly. So, so Jerry um, should be paying yeah. you. <laughs> exactly. I was going to say, Jerry, Jerry's like, Jerry wants you to try this as well. He's like, look. I'm getting my money either way. No, I mean, not really. Uh, I think you could pull it off. I think it'd be good. Yeah, I mean, why not? I think, try it. Tell us about it. My personal objection is just, you know, due to the fact that, like, it, it sounds like a painful exercise. Um, and I'm always in favor of just just, just write a check. But <laughs> um, if, if it's not something that I, like, find physically enjoyable. But um, otherwise, no, go for it. I think part of it is it's really it's it, there's just something about driving like already like I know you're not like a car girl, but you know there's something about driving a car this old and it's so the lack of computers like you feel everything as you're shifting it you know like it's such a tactile experience and then if you've put parts of that together yourself it makes it more special if that makes sense to you so it's like sure. it's like Han Solo flying his Millennium Falcon right like you earned that speed yourself so fantastic well Christina what are you up to well um hmm not that much I don't know I'm, I'm trying to I'm trying to do stuff in my office it's it's still a whole thing and so I'm trying to get to a place where it's not as much of a, a thing um, and, uh, make it nicer. Um, so I think that's going to kind of be my goal, uh, for, for, for non-work stuff this week. Uh, we, we had a, um, a live, um, event today that went pretty well about Microsoft graph. Um, uh, Microsoft build is coming up in six weeks. And so, uh, starting that starting to get real, very excited about that. That'll be happening, um, May 25th through the 27th. And, um, I'm also, oh, I was able to buy, uh, okay. You guys should be proud of me for a couple of reasons. What was it that I didn't buy? Now I can't remember what I didn't buy. 
but I did successfully buy the um, Super Nintendo um, analog. <gasps> I saw that. Oh, it's it's a really good system. That's yeah. really good. Yeah. So I was able to get the Super Analog, um, and so I'm really excited about that. I don't know when that's going to ship, but I got it, and I got the one like in the classic, uh, like like the North American kind of colorway or whatever. Um, so I'm excited about that, and. Um, I uh, also have now gone down a rabbit hole. This will be a long time coming because the first thing I have to do is is go to Atlanta to get my Nintendo 64. But I'm looking into the Ultra HDMI mods for the Ooh, Nintendo 64. Okay. So I don't know. I don't even know if I want to do that to be honest. But I'm 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 considering it because uh, I that's one of the things when I I'm going to be going to visit my parents and my sister in a couple of weeks um, after I get my um, second dose and. Um, how are your I, uh, soldering skills? <laughs> not great. Grants are good. Mine okay. are not great. Yeah. But I, I mean, I would practice, right? Like, like, uh, you know, I, I could, I could get some breadboards and and um, uh, pay for a bunch of solder and 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 solder, and I, I, I could get there. But the the one of the things I think I'm going to bring home with me, like I'm going to bring like an empty suitcase so that I can bring home like random stuff. And one of the things I'm going to bring home with me is my Nintendo 64 and my Dreamcast. So, um, so I'm excited about both of those things, but, uh, yeah, I'm now looking at the ultra HDMI mods and I'm like, Hmm. So listeners, let me know what you think, if I should go down that rabbit hole or not. I I can say I did that a similar thing with my, uh, NES to get hooked up to HDMI, which, you know, involves soldering, uh, an HDMI connector on the board. Definitely worth it. Difficult to do, uh, you know, my soldering skills, like it's one of those things, like there's no way to, to do it, but to sit, it's like, it's ass in chair time, basically. Right. <laughs> like, like it's, it's not hard. It's just getting a feel for it. Um, but that was a, a very worthwhile project. So I'm a hundred percent for it. Yeah, I'll I'll definitely think about it. Um, but uh, also, so, but l- listeners, like, let me know your thoughts. Also, uh, once again, a, a thanks slash curses to um, Charles Tan. I mm-hmm. um, uh, because I've been I've been in my keyboard um, um, like hole, and um, I just got a new keycap set that I'm going to install, and then I'll have some photos and stuff up. But I I did the arduous process of lubing all of my um, switches. Which it took like six and a half hours, uh, but I did it. So talking about, you know, um, ass and chair time, like that was definitely one of those things where I was, I didn't love it, but I did it. Well, this week, regrettably, I got back into baseball in a big way. <laughs> oh. So I'm gambling. I'm spending all oh, my excellent. time gambling. And I would like to say during this very podcast My son, Connor Haley, hit a home run that got me 2,000 coins and allowed me to max out my sunflower seeds, which means I will pull in minimum 1,500 coins when my idol gets a hit. So, as you can tell, I am really living on top of the world right now. (laughs) I I love it. no money anymore, but I will have money when I wake up tomorrow morning, presumably, unless something goes horribly wrong. Hey, before we go, if you like our show, you might also like Material, which is bringing you this episode of Rocket as well. 
Brie, you are a fan of material. What do you like about it? I am. Yeah, material started at Relay just about the same time our show did. They just uh, celebrated uh, their 300th uh, show very recently. So, you know, we're still the older sibling, which gives (laughs) us, uh, yeah, but this is, uh, I think it's fair to say uh, here on Rocket, we cover Apple more than we cover Google. And uh, they are a show that's almost entirely about Android and Google. Uh, You know, the story with uh, my friend and your friend, Yasmin, she actually works on the Android team now. So uh, just a, a really fantastic show goes in depth on that stuff in ways that uh, just because none of us here use Android, we we don't dog yep. food it. So we don't know. <laughs> yeah. So that show is hosted by Andy Anotko and Florence Ion. They are veteran technology journalists. And every week they talk about the developments in Google services and software and research. And they also cover the headlines that remind us all that the founder's famous mandate, don't be evil, is now part of the company's <laughs> history and not the company's culture. Uh, If you want to check out some of their highlight episodes, we recommend Malarkey, uh, where Google is not only put through the ringer by the Department of Justice, but also called out for providing its AI tech for border surveillance, really getting on that theme of, "Mm, don't be evil. Uh, (laughs) So go check out Material. Uh, You can find it at relay.fm slash material or search for Material wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you so much. Um, Brianna, where can I find you online? Brianna Wu on Twitter. Awesome. What about you, Christina? Film underscore girl on the Twitters and the Instagrams. And you can find the videos I do at work at youtube.com slash Microsoft Developer. And you can find me on Twitter at Doom Quasar and the videos at youtube.com slash Polygon. And I will be putting a link to that Final Fantasy video in the show notes if you care to watch it. And then I'll be hiccuping at the very end of this podcast you should leave a review for us we really appreciate it when that happens it helps other people find the show as well so if you would leave a review on apple podcasts or the podcast service of your choice that would rule and it would make you um cool it might help me get more money in baseball i don't know i don't know how the world works or 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 another uh copy of um super mario 3d (laughs) if i get a second one i get to sell that one at a profit that's the rules (laughs) No, it's not. I won't. <laughs> no, it's um, not. Hey, this episode of Rocket is terminated. 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 <laughs> <laughs>